well, we've had economists and professional footballers and historians here, but we haven't had a chartered physiotherapist, John Sheridan, the limping physio, uh, has stopped by the football library. And it's a different kind of football book because it's a memoir that you've written uh, with your son's help. How much did you pay him? I had to pay him quite a bit. I had to bribe him uh, with a few nice dinners. But he, he, he actually, it's Paul, my youngest son. He's done absolutely superb for me. The way it happened was really, um, I was sitting in here in the little study, scribbling away one day. It was due to this, during the pandemic. And uh, he walked in and he said, what are you doing, Dad? I said, I'm writing my memoirs for the grandchildren. He said, um, they look a bit scruffy, really. He said, do you want me just to tidy them up and put them in order and type them, because I'm doing them all wrong I said, I would love you to do that. And he, to be fair, he made a, he made a brilliant job of it, you know. Surprised me. Always useful when you've got a member of the family to call on in your hour of need. But it reads very well. The Limping Physio is out on pitch publications. I haven't checked the price. Is it a hardback or a paperback? It is a hardback, 19.99. Yeah. Well, it'll be available online as well. They pitch are very good. Uh, it's always £9.99 on an e-book if you just want the PDF. But in the hard copy, you'll get all the pictures as well. The glossy pictures of your time at Luton Town, uh, the finest team in Bedfordshire. I'm not one of those Watford fans who dislikes Luton because I've met Gary Sweet and I know exactly what's going on at Luton. And uh, you need a good football team there. And also Tottenham Hotspur, which interests me because... Dad took me to Tottenham in the late 90s, early 2000s. This may be after your time there. Yes, it was. I, I was very fortunate. I, I, I was with two tremendous teams, Luton Town. I watched Luton when I was a young lad and uh, I watched some of the great players playing. And then, you know, when uh, I was fortunate enough to work for my childhood team and then, of course, going to Tottenham Hots with David Pleat. Um, again, one of my favourite teams in 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 London and uh, it was it was I was very lucky and very very fortunate to uh, work for these two great teams and you do get your football library card which is laminated and unless it's anyone else it's got to be David Pleat on your library card because he is the pivotal figure in your professional life do you still speak to to him yes I do um I seen David about four weeks ago we had a little get together with the old gluten players and and uh, David and we had a, a weekend up near Coventry, a game of golf, and uh, you know, I, I keep in touch with David. He, he was, as you say, Johnny, uh, he was the man, really, that uh, gave me a chance in football, which I'll always be indebted to him, really. He he, uh, he dragged me into football, really, because I had no vision of ever going into into uh, professional football, but David seen something in me, then, and the more I tried not to go in, the more he said, yes, yes, we've got to give it, got to give it a go. So, yes, a great man. Really, really good summariser. And I hope you wish him Happy New Year today because we're speaking on Erev Jewish New Year, the day before. Happy. Yes. Happy New Year to everyone. Indeed. Um, it's, yeah, it's weird. It's so early this year. Next year is a leap year, so it's set back normally. But I don't think it's ever been this early. Um, but I'm taking this week relatively easy. Limping into New Year with John Sheridan. This accident that you had, you were 13 or 14? 14. 14, and it was initially, 14. you describe it in the book as a bike accident, which leads to hip pain, and then you fall over on a bus and do your leg. And then you spend a year in Stanmore. What was it like living there? A great hospital. 
it literally happened. I uh, I fell off a bike and uh, fell on the road, hit my left hip, and uh, a few days later I um, developed osteomyelitis. Got over that, and then I fell down the bus stairs and fractured my uh, femur, the thigh bone, and made a right mess of it. And then spent a well over a year in Stanmore Orthopaedic Hospital where they um, sorted me out. Um, a brilliant hospital gave me my life back, really. Yeah, it's. Uh, I know people who have been inpatients in there, and it's very near Bentley Priory, which must have impressed you as a son of a serviceman and a brother of a serviceman. I don't know if Bentley Priory yes. was open to people at that time. I'm not sure, Johnny, really. No. I, I'm it, not sure. It's now a museum. You know, you can go in and learn about all the stuff that happened in the Second World War. Stanmore at that time, I, I remember that they had a farm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, a, a lot of the, uh, the food that we, we actually ate was uh, produced on the farm. And uh, it was a big, sprawling place. And uh, yeah, I've got a fond memory of this, of it really, in a funny kind of way. Um, it, it, it was happy time in there, but I think it was a way of way of life you developed because at that time you had a lot, a lot of the lads that had polio and uh, so some really bad cases in there. So I, I was one of the lucky ones looking looking back on on time or in time. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I suppose it was because you were being coaxed back into ambulation, whereas if polio is a regenerative, degenerative disease. So when, yeah. and I've, I've been lucky enough to actually go to San Diego, and I think we drove past the Salk Institute, um, but polio, is it 54 the vaccine was founded? So you will have heard about, effectively, what we're doing with coronavirus. People are vaccinating uh, polio sufferers so that, they don't get polio or people because hang on it was a childhood disease and if you vaccinated it it wouldn't happen right i believe that i believe that's true yes yes and now we're in this yeah this era of covid have you had a decent last 18 months you've got these four grandkids are they local no we 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 did uh, we my wife betty and myself we were very careful paul um was in our bubble so he, he could bring uh, provisions around and uh, looked after us. But all the family really uh, helped out. Andy, my oldest son, I remember he, he went down to um, Hive and got me some fish and, and drove all the way back up to Corby and knocked on the door and left it on the doorstep because he knows I love fresh fish. And I thought, well, amazing, really. And so, so we... The, the family were really good. They kept um, they kept away us away from us, but we waved through the window and the back, you know, the back garden when yeah. we could. But, uh, but it was a horrible, it's a horrible thing, isn't it? You know, well, and so many people suffered. Yeah, my great grandma Betty lives alone, and she was bubbled up with my great aunt and great uncle. But you lived with Betty. Um, did either of you have to isolate? Was it one of those stages where you had to go into a room to escape them? No, no, it, it never got that far. We 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 seen them and we would speak at a distance. Um, and Debbie, my daughter, she she didn't come up, so we never seen her for quite a long while. But uh, they would just leave um, 
you know, provisions, prescriptions, whatever, uh, on a chair outside. And sometimes we, we would just wander out into the garden and have a, have a conversation, sometimes over the wall or through the window. But um, they kept an eye on us all the while, you know, which, was, which was brilliant. So we were, the, we were the lucky ones because some people weren't as lucky. You know, they didn't have families. So, and we had each other, of course, to bounce off of. Well, what about this football family? Because there's the old saying in, I studied Greek and Latin, and you've got the bread and the circuses. As long as a population has food and entertainment, you can shut them up. And the circus part of that last year was professional football. Now, you know a lot of ex-pros, current, maybe some current pros, some fathers of pros. It didn't seem cricket. It didn't seem sensible for players to be in their bubbles. And now we've got this situation where a lot of players refuse vaccinations because one of the things that has been attributed to that is that they're spending long hours alone going down the rabbit hole. But did you watch any of it? Did you I follow I Luton last season and the season before? I did, yeah. I always followed uh, Luton and Tottenham. Though, though I don't go to the games. I, I, I go to some of the local games. I watch Corby sometimes. And uh, so... I do enjoy I, I enjoy non league football, but I always I always do follow professional football. I'm not sure if it uh, should have gone on. I'm, you know, um, and as for the um, inoculations, you know, players not having them, it's it's a topic a topic really that you know I personally think that unless you've got a medical reason, sometimes maybe are you being a little bit selfish by not. Having them, I, I don't know. I, you know, people will disagree. Some agree. Um, it's difficult, really, isn't it? You can't tell people what to do. But personally, as, as soon as I had a chance to to get my first jab, I was there. I was flying through the door. Well, yes. And uh, you, we should say you are my you're my grandma's age. You're a few weeks younger than my grandma. So I don't know if you're planning yeah. your eightieth very soon, but you are of the vulnerable. Although you keep fit because you play golf, but all the same. Um, viruses strike people of your age worse. Yeah, I've got a couple of years to go yet for um, 80, but I do keep reasonably fit. I go swimming three or four times a week. I mean, I was swimming this morning. I was in the pool at quarter past seven for an hour. So I do that at least three three times a week, and I love it. I absolutely love it. That's Yeah, I haven't swum. I live opposite a swimming pool, and that is the last thing that I would do. It's the chlorine. It makes me tired. One thing I wanted to ask, because you play golf and you watch non-league football, I wish I could remember who it was that told me recently or wrote about it, that the crowds in non-league football are people who can't get into the golf club. Do you know what that guy was saying when he meant that? They couldn't get into the golf club. I mean, golf now is is attainable to most people, isn't it? You know, even if you play green fee, because, I mean, there's a... There's a course in Corby. I don't think the green fee's too expensive. I think the people that watch non-league football are, are, are people that absolutely love the game. You know, I mean, professional football now has priced itself out of the, the market for some people. If you've uh, got two kids and uh, you try and go through football, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. Where the local game, you know, Corby, I don't know what that would cost, maybe £8.00. It's affordable, and also you're going to see a great game where people, look, these players are trying their hardest, and you know the players, 
I mean, if you said to me, some of these premiers, so I can I can name you the players. When I was in football, the players, especially at Luton and early doors, the players, some of them were local lads that got on the bus to go to the game. You know, they they played for Luton, they were professional, but they still had to get the bus to get to the game, and that would that's unheard of nowadays. And and the average working man could afford to watch the game. But now, you know, it's, it's priced out of the range of a lot of people that would love to go and watch a game. Well, especially Tottenham. Imagine working in that stadium, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium now. It would, it would be absolutely brilliant. When I, when I went to Tottenham, I worked, um, first of all, I was at Chesham, which, which was lovely facilities. Then we went to Ferguson's for a year, which was the old Ferguson's, the television um, factory. It was their club, you know, so we we there. And then we, we moved to Mill Hill, and, and I worked out of two old porter cabins that we got from the North Sea. We had to get players fit from these facilities. And when I was at Tottenham, I mean, I had assistant Cliff Spate when I first went there, then um, Dave Butler, and that was it. That was it. And, and we had a, a club doctor, Dr. Curtin, who was... GP had a practice and he would come in, you know, a couple of times a week. And that was it. We've done the whole lot. Now you look at now Tottenham, how many physios have they got? How many other members of the staff? I mean, nutritionists, soft tissues, cryogenicists. Yeah, that's that's it. And we've done a lot of rehab down at the health club in in Mill Hill. You know, we, we, we didn't have all these massive facilities so I remember you know getting these international players we we, we used the car park to get them fit that, that would be unheard of now you know it just it just doesn't happen uh, we are we are talking just before Jewish New Year uh, Anthony Clavain wrote the most amazing book called Does Your Rabbi Know You're Here and he posited that two of the key figures in English football are Jewish executives there's David Dean from the other lot and the great Irving Scholar, who floated Tottenham on the stock market. Did, did you have shares in Tottenham as part of your uh, remuneration? I didn't, unfortunately. No. Mm. No, I didn't. I, I would have loved a few, but he never, he never threw them my way, unfortunately. Damn. They never think of the physio. But yeah, I was going to ask about these porter cabins. Just say Glenn Hoddle racks up. What is he going to see and touch and taste and feel Apart as as you kind of um, manipulate his tender legs, what are, what are these porter cabins like? They were two large porter cabins that had been used on the oil fields in the North Sea. Uh, we were connected to the power by an old generator. So my job in the morning was to start this generator up, and on a cold, frosty morning, it used to be quite difficult because, you know, with the old diesel engines, they were difficult to start. So sometimes I had to bleed the engine to get them going, otherwise there'd be no treatment. So it was, uh, and then then you'd get the old diesel generator going and then it, you know, make all this noise and then we'd settle down to, to treat the players. It was quite an experience and uh, I can't really see any physio now that's, uh, that's going to do this. It was a great time though. I mean, looking back, the memories, the memories, that's what was able... I was able to write, write a book because it, it's quite funny, really. You, you think magnificent Tottenham Stadium now, and uh, 
you know, what we had to work with, it was, it's incredible, really. And their training ground, I mean, I've never been to their training ground, but I've heard how lovely it is and how many people are up there working. I, I would have loved just a, you know, just a couple of couple of days actually seeing what they, they've got and what I never had. But did I lose out? No, I don't think so. No, I don't, no. No, I didn't. And I enjoyed every minute of it. And you've recorded it in this book, The Limping Physio, which Pitch have put out. And it's a recollection of football. But the most interesting bits are the worky bits. I mean, I would love to read, is it Richard Stedman, the world-renowned knee surgeon who worked with Owen Hargreaves and Michael Owen? Yeah. I'd love to read his book because these are athletes going in to sort their bodies out and also the mental aspect of things, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. It's just, yeah. it's a workplace. The, the footballer, who is an asset, goes to get his body checked out if it's injured. And you were part of the generation that um, helped fo- prolong footballers' lives. Teddy Sheringham played to the age of 40. He certainly wouldn't have been playing to Ford. And well, maybe he would have done. Because if he looked after his body the way Ryan Giggs had. Because when, when you were younger, Stanley Matthews was playing to the age of 50. This is a very convoluted way of saying, wow, don't footballers play a lot these days? They play. Their career is lengthened because the chance of being having their careers curtailed through injury is a lot less. I think the first thing as a physio, the most important thing is the player's health is paramount. The game comes a long way behind it, so it's it's up to the physio to look after the player and know that at a certain age he's not going to be able to play again. Now, in the lower reaches of the football league, that means that they might have to go out and work for a living. I know it doesn't happen in Premier Division. So it's up to us, really, to look after their health, you know, mental as well, and, and, and look after them and try and just, just look after them. Um, and so at the end of the day, with hand on your heart, you can say, well, look, I've done the best I can. You've got to give your players 100%. You've got to give the club 100%. But the important thing is players' health, and that is important before, before the game. So you don't let them play if they're injured. You know, you try and avoid... I'm getting injected, which used to happen not so much now, but it did in, in a few years back. You know, cortisone was used to have lib, you know, and, and, and it, it was wrong because they didn't know actually what, what it was actually doing to the, the player's body. So, um, and, and football as, as, and medicine has progressed so much in the last few years, you know, when, when I first started. The only diagnostic piece of aid we had was uh, was our hands and an X-ray. Mm-hmm. Now you look now and you, you've got all these amazing scans and that, and you know, and and all these people that, that are looking after the players. So we we were really the pioneers in this type. You know, with, with some of the injuries, there was no protocols written up how to tr- how to treat them. We had to work out what what is the best way to treat this player, you know, and it, it was very very important. And, and I, I know I always made or tried to make sure that I was at all the players' operations with the surgeon. So I watched the player, you know, any operations. So I got a feel of what he'd done, how it how it was going to heal, and. I was able to speak to the surgeon and, and, and plan the protocol of his rehabilitation, sometimes in the, in the operating theatre. And, it, and it, I was very, very lucky because these, these great surgeons, and I've watched some of the greatest, 
they allow me in to watch them. Mm-hmm. And, and I was very, very privileged to uh, stand there, um, you know, after a shower in, in, in my blues and, and, and watch these amazing men. It's brilliant. It, yeah, it's like being a youth player and being called up to play with the first team. Um, we, we now have this situation where football is classed as an industrial disease. Not just Jeff Astle with the dementia and Terry Mack, Terry McDermott and Dennis Law, Bobby Charlton, Jack Charlton's passed away of it. But these knee injuries, there are players in their 60s and 70s creaking around Britain with porcelain hips because of all the injections that they had. It, but you said you played a golf game earlier this year with all the Luton lads. Are there any yeah. kind of metal hips or are the players, because they were looked after by you in the 1980s, relatively free of uh, leg pains? I would love to say they're, they're free from leg pains, but no, that's not the case. There's, there's a couple of them had uh, new hips, suffer from knee problems. You know, I think that was the run of the mill for players then. However much you tried and strive to keep them fit, I was lucky. I I worked with two managers, uh, two main managers anyway, David Play and Terry Venables, that, that never pushed me to make players play when when they they weren't fit. They did listen to me. I did try and protect the players, but I think just the rigors of the game anyway causes mm. you know osteoarthritis. Arthritic changes anyway, so you know. Um, I'm sure now the players are because they've got so many people looking after them. Maybe they are look after better than we did in them days. But I'm sure most of the physios in them, you know, at my time, we did try and you know consider the welfare of the players. Yeah, and not just that. When David Pleat would scour the yearbook for some players who hadn't played very much, it was up to you to give them the all clear. And there were times that you say in your book where you advised, and of course they are willing to disobey your advice, but you say, well, we've done the x-rays, we've run him through the medical, there is a high chance that this chap will be a damaged asset. You're buying damaged goods if you buy him and you, you have to anonymise a certain player. But how quickly do you know that a player fails can, has to, is not good enough physically for the top division as it was with Luton? But when we used to buy players, they would ask me to um, sound it out, see, see, you know, what what we can find out about the player, and, and that's what I used to do. And then I would try and find out from Rothman's yearbook, which unfortunately doesn't exist now. But you could see how many games they played over uh, preceding, you know, seasons, and then often you you got a um, a feeling about a player, you know. And then if you were lucky enough. Because the physios were a close sort of network, you you could find out not from his club that he's with now, but the club before. Just if, if he had problems, um, you know what were the problems, and if you maybe give him a bottle of wine or something, you might get a little bit of information. But in the end, you made up your own mind, and you develop an instinct about about players, and you advise the manager accordingly. You say, "Well, look, I don't." I don't think he's really the right player for us, unfortunately. He's, he's a great character, but he is prone to have uh, problems. And, and I think if you signed him, he would be in the treatment room more than on the field. And that's what I tried to do with, with uh, David. Not so much at, at 
Tottenham because Tottenham had more money um, and also they were buying players that were sort of better known anyway. You know, David would sometimes buy players from the lower reaches or players that they thought were finished, but in fact they weren't and, and you you worked on them even though they were injured and you got them back playing um, and they become icons really. So there was players that, that uh, no names mentioned that, that we got back playing and played for many years after and gave Luton tremendous service. And I hope that they keep you in mind because it often goes unmentioned when a physio gets a player back to full fitness. Obviously, the player takes the brunt of it, but they're being guided by the science, if, to, to coin a stupid phrase, which doesn't exist. The science. The science, yes. The players, um, you guide them, you, you do the best for them that you can, and um, you work on the knowledge that you've developed over the years, I think. And, and as you get older and you, you've been in football a few years, you, you get a feeling about... Um, what's going on, you know. It's, it's very, very interesting. And, and it was funny in the book, you know, I got a few other players to, that had been injured to say how they felt at that time and how they feel now. So it, it, was, an, it was a very interesting exercise, really, and they were all kind enough to do it. I mean, before I put any player's name in the book, for ethical reasons, I asked them if I could mention them and to a man, they said, absolutely, you know, you do it, which was very nice. And some of the things I read, you know, it, I, I was delighted with, really, you know, and it, it did prove that I, they thought I looked after them, which was so important to me. 